Well, children may now attend children's up to third grade. I'm going to move this. Okay. And while they're doing that, you can turn your Bibles to our passage for this morning. That is Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3, the entire chapter. And again, we'll, we'll be doing what we have been doing, which is just going through the passage and uh, studying it as we read through it. Um, so we won't read through it beforehand. So Ruth chapter 3. Okay. Well, today we're going to watch a clip from a movie, um, one of my favorite romantic comedies, Pride and Prejudice, uh, and it's a wonderful film uh, based off of a wonderful novel by Jane Austen, and it's of the same name, and I assume that many of you have either read the novel or seen the sh- TV series or seen the movie, but uh, for, in case you haven't, the story is about a family in the late 1700s, the Bennett family. Okay, so there's Mr. Bennett, Mrs. Bennett, and their five daughters. And I'm going to set up the scene for you. Um, the, the Bennett family has a problem in that none of the daughters have any suitors for marriage. Okay, and so part of that is because there are none near, not many nearby, and then another part of that is because uh, the f- father is not uh, very wealthy. So in the scene we're going to watch... Um, a potential suitor has arisen for the eldest daughter, Jane. She's the blonde one in the scene. Uh, the suitor's name is Mr. Bingley, which is just a fantastic name. Um, and he's a very amicable and kind young man, uh, if not a little shy. And he and Jane, they're a very good match. Um, in our scene today, Jane gets a letter from Mr. Bingley's sister, inviting her to come to their estate for dinner, which is a few miles away. Um, but there's a problem. Mr. Bingley isn't going to be there, which is completely unacceptable to Jane's mother, Mrs. Bennett. Um, he's out on business and won't be back until uh, the next day or so. Well, Mrs. Bennett, as I said, is completely unacceptable to her, so she devises a plan where Jane can stay for longer than she was invited to stay so that she could see Mr. Bingley. With Miss Lucas. Oh, poor thing. It is a shame she's not more handsome. There's a spinster in the making, and no mistake. The fourth with a Miss King of little standing, and the fifth again with Jane. If you'd had any (laughs) compassion for me, you would have sprained his ankle in the first step. Oh, Mr. Penny, the way you carry on, anyone would think our dolls look forward to a grand inheritance. When you die, Mr. Bennett, which may in fact be very soon, yeah, our girls will be left without a roof over their head, nor a penny to their name. Oh, Mama, please, it's ten in the morning. A letter addressed to Miss Bennett, Mum, from Netherfield Ward. Praise the Lord. We are saved. Make haste. Oh, happy day. It is from Caroline Bingley. She has invited me to dine with her. Her brother will be dining out. Dining out? Can I take the carriage? Where? Let me see that. It's too far to walk, Mama. It's unaccountable of him dining out, indeed. Mama, the carriage for Jane. 
Certainly not. She'll go on horseback. Horseback? Good grief, woman. Your skills in the art of matchmaking are positively occult. Though I don't think, Mama, you can reasonably take credit for making it rain. My kind friends will not hear of me returning home until I am better. Do not be alarmed. Excepting a sore throat, a fever, and a headache, there is nothing much wrong with me. This is ridiculous. Well, if Jane does die, be a comfort to know it was in pursuit of Mr. Bingley. People do not die of cold. But she may well perish with the shame of having such a mother. <laughs> I must go to Netherfield at once. Okay. Well, in case you missed that, uh, Jane's mother didn't let her take the carriage. She made her take the horse. Uh, over to the estate and it, because she knew it was going to rain, and then because it rained, she got sick, and because she got sick, uh, the Bingleys would have to take care of her, and then she'd be able to stay long enough to see Mr. Bingley. Okay, uh, Mrs. Bennett is a calculating and opportuni opportunistic woman, although throughout the entire movie, she's really quite an anxious uh, person. But here... Um, She's taking advantage of the opportunity given to her. Today in our story, we're going to see uh, something new, a new side from Naomi, a woman who now suddenly seems, sees hope for the future, and she understands the weight of her current circumstances, like Mrs. Bennett. And so she acts accordingly. Well, before we get into our passage, let's uh, begin with the context of the book. For those of you, if you haven't been here the last couple weeks, we'll catch you up to speed. Um, so far in Ruth and Naomi's story, there's, it's been a lot of adventure, a long journey. Um, again, it's important to note that this book is taking place in the book of Judges. Okay, so one of the worst periods in the history of Israel. A dangerous time to live. And in chapter 1, Naomi and her family fled a famine in Bethlehem and went to live in Moab, where uh, her, two her two sons uh, married Moabite women, uh, which is a good thing. But then uh, tragedy struck, and her sons and her husband, Elimelech, died in Moab. Um, and so she decides to return home, and she returns home just with one daughter instead of two. Uh, Ruth chose a great um, sign and makes a vow of dedication to Naomi, and she goes home with Naomi to Bethlehem. So Ruth is now a widow in a foreign country, um, and Naomi is a widow, um, but a widow at the country that she's from. And so at the end of chapter 1, Naomi returns back to Bethlehem, and she says, I no longer want to be called Naomi, pleasant one, but Mara, bitterness, because the Lord... Uh, could have given her a pleasant life, but he gave her a bitter one instead. And so she says she left Bethlehem full and came back empty. And in chapter 2, things started to look up for Ruth. 
Um, Ruth being a Moabite widow in Bethlehem during the time of Judges, she decided that she was going to go glean in the fields for um, scraps for her and, her and Naomi to live by, which was, uh, during its time, again, a dangerous thing to do if people were not following the law of the Lord, which most people were not. She just happens to go to the field of a man named Boaz, who was not only faithful to the law of the Lord, but understood the heart of the law. He was a very kind and generous man. And if she had gone to any other field, she most likely would have been mistreated. The Lord was guiding her steps. So Boaz shows her extraordinary kindness and generosity, and she works very hard, and she ends up with 30 pounds of barley to go home to Naomi with. And 30 pounds of barley is a extraordinarily large amount of barley to go home with. And so she has an abundance of food to go home with Naomi. And so they, Ruth now essentially has a job, for at least for the harvest season. She's able to go and glean with the workers in Boaz's field. She's able to provide food for her mother. And so that problem of food, of needing, of two widows in Bethlehem needing food, has been resolved, um, albeit temporarily. And uh, when Ruth comes back to Naomi, Naomi realizes who Boaz is. He's a kinsman redeemer, a ga'al, if you remember the Hebrew word. Um, a kinsman redeemer is a very important word in the scriptures, and it's a, a word that, um, essentially, it's, it's someone who is an advocate, someone who is in the same clan as Naomi, who has the responsibility and right to buy back land that has been sold because of poverty, and to redeem a widow um, who has lost her husband and who has no family or children to take care of her. So, Boaz is this man who can provide the other need that Naomi and Ruth have, which is family. Now, the question is, of course, it's, uh, they, they have been... Ruth has been working for a couple months now, and she has this temporary job, and she's got this short-term solution for her family. The question is, why, with knowing what we know of Boaz, why hasn't he done what he has the responsibility to do, according to law, which is redeem uh, these widows? Um, what's he waiting for? And we'll get the answer to that later on but the passage in chapter 2 ends in Ruth 2:23 it says so she stayed close by the maids of Boaz she being Ruth in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest and she lived with her mother-in-law because of her efforts the kindness of Boaz and the providence of the Lord Ruth has a job and can provide for food for her and Naomi okay so, short-term solution, Ruth and Naomi, Naomi need a long-term solution. That's where we left off last week, and that's where we are in the beginning of chapter 3. And chapter 3 is just loads of fun. There's all sorts of things where you're like, what is going on? This is weird, and we'll get to go into that today. So, verse, let's, let's begin with section 1, Naomi's plot, verses 1 through 5. Let's begin in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Then Naomi... Her mother-in-law said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Okay. She is, it has been a couple months. Boaz has not made a move. And say Naomi uh, sees an opportunity and begins to take advantage of it. She says, My daughter, okay, sh- shall I not seek security for you? Was she wanting to seek a home, 
a permanent home for Ruth and Naomi. I have no idea where they're staying in Bethlehem right now, um, although they are getting food. But Naomi wants to provide security for her. And that means in this day and age for a marriage to Boaz. Not to Boaz, but to, to someone, sorry. A marriage, a family, security, a home. So like Mrs. Bennett, she is concerned for the future well-being of her daughter. So that's how it begins. So what is this plan that she has? How is she going to seek security for Ruth? Well, let's find out. Verse 2. Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Okay, we've already talked about what a kinsman redeemer is. Boaz is the one who redeemed them through marriage, through the purchasing back of land. Um, of course, um, as we mentioned before, the question is, why hasn't he done anything yet? And we'll get that later, that answer later. But what she knows is going on is that it is the end of the harvest season. So that two months is about over, and Boaz is winnowing barley at the threshing floor. So I assume most of you have not threshed or winished our winnowed grain and barley, so I'll explain a little bit what's going on. Um, the winnowing time is this kind of this happy and festive time at the end of the harvest where everyone's work during the harvest season is coming to a culmination. Okay, so Boaz is at the threshing floor, which would, is a flat, hard, open public area where people would bring their grain in the piles tied up. They would bring it and they would thresh their grain. Um, so this would have been a place probably on a hill somewhere, probably where there was a gentle breeze, because they're going to need a breeze to winnow the barley. Um, and so they take the grain to the threshing floor, and they thresh it, which means they separate the husk from the grain. Okay, And they do that by getting an animal to stomp on it, you know, getting a cart to roll over it, using a fork to crush it. Um, they separate the grain, and when they're done with that, they get a winnowing fork or a shovel, and they get the piles, and they throw them up in the air. And then the wind blows up the chaff, which is lighter, and the grain falls to the ground, and so it's separated. And they get all that, and they put everything in piles, and then they put it there on the threshing floor. And so that's what's going on. He's at the threshing floor, and he's winnowing the barley, and it's the product of all his hard work through the harvest season at piles on the threshing floor. So it's an open public place. Um, Boaz would not be the only one there. Um, but she knows what's going on and what he's doing and where he'll be. So that's the first step. So what does Naomi want Ruth to do? We'll look at verses 3 and 4. This is where it gets uh, a little weird, it sounds like. In verse 3. Wash yourself, therefore... And anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. This is Naomi's plan. Um, it's a weird one. Uh, First of all, she's telling Ruth to uh, make herself appealing, okay? Anointing herself, washing herself, putting on her best clothes. Um, and then she's supposed to go down to the threshing floor. 
and she's essentially supposed to hide somewhere at the threshing floor until um, Boaz eats and drinks and, and falls asleep. So she's hiding somewhere, and she's waiting until nightfall, until he falls asleep. <clears throat> but, and this part's important, it says, but when he lies down, you shall notice the place where he lies. Okay, It's very important that Ruth knows where Boaz is lying down, because when it comes dark and she goes to uncover her, his feet, she, it needs to not be some random dude. Okay, It needs to be Boaz. Okay, it would be disastrous if he, she came up to someone else. Um, it could potentially be disastrous if she goes up to Boaz. We don't know yet. All right. Okay. So she needs to notice. She needs to notice where he is lying, and then she shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Okay. Um, in other places, we see this kind of phrasing and. Um, it can mean something more than just uncovering his feet. Here, I think the simplest understanding of it is it to mean just uncovering his feet, okay? So his toes, his heel, up to his shin, and then that's it. All right? <laughs> so that's what I think she is suggesting here. Um, because, remember, she's not suggesting for her to do something uh, that would be inappropriate at this time because it's, you have to remember it's a public place. It's, it's open. They're not the only ones there. Um, and Ruth and Boaz are both characterized as men and women of excellent character. So I don't think there's anything going on. She's, it's not, she's not suggesting a proposition for Ruth to sleep with Boaz. That's not what's going on here. Um, it's a public place. So here's this. Why is she asking him to uncover his feet? We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but then he will tell you what to do. Um, I feel like if you or I were hearing this plan, we might say no. This is weird, right? But Ruth is going to go, and she's going to um, execute this plan. And uh, what's her response? Verse 5, uh, she said to her, all that you say, I will do. So Ruth seems to have some sort of comprehension of what Naomi is asking her to do. Now, it's a risky proposal. What will happen if Boaz uh, rejects Ruth, or if she approaches the, the wrong man, or if she is caught, um, it is risky for Ruth, but Ruth is willing to do it because she's putting the needs of uh, Naomi and her family before herself. So now we see the plan in action in the second section here, verses 6 through 15, Ruth's proposal, verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. Okay, just a summary statement. She went and did what her mother-in-law asked her to do. Verse 7. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and laid down. Okay, she did exactly what her what Naomi said she would do. Now, why is, is Boaz a wealthy landowner sleeping on the threshing floor. Um, part of the reason here is because he's a farmer. He has been working all day at gathering and threshing and winnowing the wheat, and so it's exhausting. And so this is a place where the farmers who are doing this would essentially camp out at the threshing floor. One, because they're tired. Two, because um, they want to protect their product 
from potential thieves um, that are lurking around at night. It's the time of judges, okay? So that is why he is at the threshing floor and sleeping at the threshing floor. And Naomi knew that he would be doing this. He knew, she knew this is what people do. And it says that he ate and he drank until his heart was merry. That just means he, until he was satisfied. Um, if you're thinking it's, it's saying that it's, he, he was drunk, um, you're reading too much into it. Okay? He's just satisfied with food and drink. His heart is merry. And the whole point is he's exhausted, he's eaten well, and now he's going to sleep. Okay, that's the whole point of this entire um, statement here. So he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now, she came secretly. That, that means she waited till nightfall. So he's asleep. She waited till nightfall when no one would see her, and she secretly approached Boaz and uncovered his feet and laid down at his feet. Now, why does she uncover his feet? I think the answer is simple. It's so that he would wake up in the middle of the night. Okay, as, as the sun sets and the night goes on and it gets cooler, a uh, cold breeze would come over his feet and he would wake up. All right, that's all she's doing. Okay, I think some of you can relate to that. I mean, I know personally, if my feet stick outside the covers, I wake up. Maybe you guys don't do that. I do. Okay, so an interesting fact about me is that actually anytime my feet are uncovered, from the blankets, I actually have a nightmare every single time. I don't know why. It's my body telling me to get my feet back under the covers. And I have a nightmare, and I wake up, and I look down, and my feet are sticking out. So maybe that's what's happening with Boaz here. Probably not. <laughs> Whenever Ruth is, is uh, upset at me, she just uncovers my feet, and I wake up <laughs> in the middle of the night. No, that's not what happens. Um, <laughs> my Ruth, Yes. So she is um, uncovering his feet so that he will wake up in the middle of the night, and then they can have a conversation under the guise of nightfall. <clears throat> so that's what's going on. And we'll see that happen in verse 8. So Ruth is lying down by Boaz in the middle of the night, his feet uncovered. She's just, she's just laying there, and she's waiting. Verse 8. It happened in the middle of the night, that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. Notice it's not Boaz and Ruth anymore. It's a man and a woman. Okay, it's just kind of giving us a picture of the darkness. Um, it's nighttime. It's the middle of the night, probably around midnight. An important word here is behold. Okay, henna. All right, if any of you have been in any of the Sunday school services um, the hour before, you have heard Al teach on this word, henna, okay? So a lot of you probably know what it means. I feel Al talks about henna like I like to talk about Jonah, all right? And so henna is an important word here. It, uh, it's a word that is meant to uh, put you in the moment, and it puts you in the perspective of the person saying henna, okay? An example of this is in the book of Job when a massive wind is coming across the wilderness to destroy his house, the author says, Henna, look, a great wind is coming. It puts you in the moment of the story. And so, this is being told from the perspective of Boaz, okay? And you guys can imagine this. You're asleep. All of a sudden, your feet are really, really cold. You wake up, you bend over to go cover your feet, and whoa, there's a woman there, all right? That, anybody would react that way, right? This isn't just a cultural thing. Anybody would react this way. Whoa, 
I think that's a good way to translate it. Or hey, or what? Okay, anyway. So he says, his next question, verse 9, it's very understandable. Who are you? <laughs> it's a big deal who, who it is. If it was anyone but Ruth, I don't think it would be a, a favorable reaction here. Um, but he says, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Okay, more weird phrases um, we thought we were done with. But verse 9, first of all, notice how she identifies herself. I am Ruth. Okay, I'm not, she doesn't say I am Ruth the Moabitess. She says I am Ruth. And she identifies herself as the maid. And the, earlier she identified herself as a, a maid servant. And the word was kind of for the lowest level of servant, uh, I believe it was a sifka, but here she's wor- using the Hebrew word ama. So it's a servant, but it's someone who uh, could be married. Um, it's someone who could get married potentially to Boaz, and that's how she presents herself. And she says, spread your covering over your maid. Okay, now what she ex- is suggesting, again, she's not suggesting that uh, he sleep with her. What she is suggesting, and I, and I see this in a lot of translations that I've read, is um, she's saying that she wants him to marry her, okay? The covering over your maid is a expression that you see in Ezekiel when the Lord is covering over Israel with his skirt, and he is um, making a covenant with Israel. It's a picture of marriage. So the New English translation translates it this way, I am Ruth, your servant, marry your servant, okay? She is asking Boaz to fulfill the role and responsibility that he has to fulfill. And covering, this is neat here, covering is the same word that is used in chapter 2 when Boaz was talking to Ruth and he was giving her this prayer, this wish for her because of all the good things she has done for Naomi. He says, may the Lord reward your work under whose wings you have sought refuge. Okay, wings is, comes from the same word as covering here. And so essentially Ruth is saying that um, you had this prayer from, for the Lord to reward my work, and now you have an opportunity to be the answer for that prayer. Okay, It's like when you go up to a pastor and you have an idea for a ministry, and they say, great, when do you want to start it? Right? You have an opportunity to fulfill the need that is being presented. Um, so that is what she is proposing to Boaz. Verse 10. Now, if I were Boaz, this would be a, uh, this might be a surprising request if I were Boaz, but maybe not for him. Verse 10, it says, Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Um, Okay. It's that same word, hesed, that we've heard over and over again. That loving kindness. That uh, hesed that characterizes the Lord's kindness. That we have seen, especially last chapter, Ruth and Naomi exemplify in their concern. Uh, Ruth and Boaz, sorry, exemplify in their concern uh, for Boaz for Ruth and Ruth for Naomi. <clears throat> um, so what's he saying that his... You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first. The first kindness would be Ruth um, leaving an opportunity 
to go back to Moab and marry again and be with her family and to follow Naomi to Bethlehem for um, Naomi's sake so that she wouldn't be alone. He's saying this kindness is better than your first. Okay, so what I think he is saying here, he is not saying that the kindness uh, is towards Boaz. It's towards himself. Now, Boaz may be happy and may appreciate what she's doing, but the kindness that she is that he is commending her for is uh, her kindness towards Naomi again. Why? Because Naomi pursued um, a marriage that would restore Elimelech's line, that would um, be, be able to be fulfilled by the kinsman redeemer. It's a marriage that would be beneficial not just for her, but for Naomi as well. So Ruth didn't go after the young men. She didn't go after marriage for love or for wealth with a young man, but she was willing to marry Boaz for the sake of Naomi. And that's why he is saying that this kindness is better than the first. Um, and so she, he uh, pronounces this blessing upon her. And uh, Boaz continues in verse 11. Now my daughter, do not fear. So now my daughter, now my dear, a term of endearment. Do not fear, I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. So he is willing to marry her because she's a woman of excellence, because of her character. Another place we see this phrase, woman of excellence, is Proverbs 31, when it talks about a worthy woman. Um, One of the few places we see this phrase, woman of excellence. And so it's just, that's the type of woman he's characterizing her to be for showing this hesed, this loyal love to Naomi. Um, Another neat fact about Ruth in Proverbs 31 is that in the Hebrew Bible, Proverbs 31 ends with a statement about a worthy woman, and then after Proverbs, it comes the book of Ruth. Um, I think that's pretty neat. Uh, But here, I think the author is also doing something very clever. The woman of excellence in the Hebrew is Isha Hayil. Woman of excellence. In chapter 2, verse 1, the narrator described Boaz as a man of providence, a man of great um, providence or strength or wealth. And that phrase there is Ishail. So Boaz is an Ishail, and then he calls Ruth an Ishail. So the narrator is making clear that these two people are very fit for one another. But just as things seem to be fitting together perfectly, there's another bump in the road, and that's how every story, good, uh, good story goes, right? You think it's going to go well and end, and all of a sudden, boom, something else happens. Um, so verse 12. Now it is true, I am a cr- close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Verse, let's keep going to verses 13 and 14. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Okay, so the problem that is brought up here is that there is another kinsman redeemer, which Boaz doesn't necessarily see as a problem. His concern is that they are indeed uh, redeemed, that they are indeed taken care of. So either if it's by this guy or by Boaz, 
um, great, whichever one is willing to do it. Now, of course, as the reader, we are invested in Ruth and Boaz's relationship, and we're saying, no, we don't want that to happen. And so we want Boaz and Ruth to get together. Um, but Boaz is a, a man of principle, and he wants to do right, the things the right way so that there's no questioning the legitimacy of this relationship. Um, so he tells, uh, he has Ruth stay the night. Now, why does he have her stay the night? Again, it's another simple answer. If she leaves in the middle of the night, she will be vulnerable to hooligans and rapscallions and all those, you know, thieves and all, I can't think of other words, but she'll be vulnerable if she leaves. So she has her, her, he has her stay the night, but then she must leave early enough because if people see that she was staying there with Boaz um, all throughout the night, then of course assumptions will be made um, and there will be doubt cast on their relationship. Um, So she stays the night, but she gets early enough to go back home. In verse 15, And then finally, before she leaves, okay, look at what Boaz does. Verse 15, again, he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. Okay, six measures of barley. Um, From what I've read, there's um, a general consensus, at least, that it's about 60 pounds of barley. Um, That's a lot of barley, right? That's twice as much as he gave her at the end of the first chapter. Why is he giving her so much barley? Perhaps he wants to see if she can carry it, if she's going to be his wife. Um, It doesn't say, okay? But I think we'll find out. It will say later on. But she does carry. She carries it back home. She carries back 60 pounds of barley, probably uphill, back to the city. Um, And then we see what happens next. Ruth's report in verses 16 through 18. Verse 16. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. Now, literally, she's asking, Who are you, my daughter? Okay, and now, I think she obviously knows who Ruth is. So the question is asking, Was the mission I sent you on a success? You know, are you still, are you engaged to Boaz? Are you to be married? Will he redeem us? And so Ruth gives a report about everything that happened. And then in verse 17, next we see why Boaz gave Ruth so much barley. Verse 17, she said, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Okay? We get a bit of information we didn't have before. So Boaz is telling Ruth that all this grain, it's not for Ruth. It's for Naomi. So that Naomi would not be empty-handed. That word empty-handed is the same exact word used at the end of chapter 1 when Naomi returns from Bethlehem, or not from Bethlehem, from Moab. When Naomi returns from Moab, and everybody's call it saying, is, can this be Naomi? And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant one. Call me Mara, which means bitterness, because I left full and returned empty. And it's that same word being used here. Boaz is saying, you must not return to your mother-in-law empty. And so she, he is, it's this beautiful gesture by Boaz with all this extraordinary amount of wheat and barley telling her, you are no longer going to be empty. You are going to be full. 
you're going to be more full than you can imagine. Um, Boaz is often seen as a type or a foreshadowing of Christ, and it's easy to see why. Um, so it's a very beautiful gesture that Boaz makes to Naomi. She is no longer going to be empty. So you, you must not return to her empty hand. Return to her full. Verse 18. I think Naomi gets the message here. She said, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest until he has settled it today. So after this gesture, there's no doubt in Naomi's mind that Boaz is going to do what he promised to do. So they know that one way or another, they are going to be redeemed. They're going to have family. They're going to have security in a home once again. And not just food temporarily, but a permanent home. So, it's a beautiful story and chapter. And uh, there's a lot of a lot of action in this chapter. A lot happens. Opportunities are presented, and the characters of the story take advantage of them as, as much as they can, but not for their own well-being, for the, but for the well-being of someone else. Um, as we saw in the beginning, um, Naomi is looking for a permanent home and a safe place for Ruth's sake. She wants Ruth to have a permanent home. And so she does what she can to take advantage of the opportunity presented to her, and give her a permanent home. But she can only do so much. And then we saw Ruth, on the other other hand, not only follows Naomi's instructions, but she goes even a little bit further. She doesn't wait for Boaz to give her instructions. She tells Boaz, marry me, do your responsibility, right? She tells him to do it. And um, as Boaz made clear, she's doing it, not for her sake, not for Boaz's sake, but for the sake of Naomi. And, of course, she can only do so much. Um, And then Boaz, given the opportunity not only to provide food for Naomi and Ruth, but family as well, goes on to make sure that a redeemer, whether it's him or someone else, takes care of these widows. So all three of these characters in this story take advantage of their opportunities and act in that loyal love that we've heard so much about in this entire book. But ultimately, everything coming together is up to the Lord and his good purposes. They can only do so much. And now, all Naomi and Ruth can do, in chapter 4 going on, is wait and see how the Lord works. So, in conclusion, I want to leave you with this message. I believe the message of our chapter is, in the opportunities given to you, act in love and trust God. The opportunities given to you, act in love, and trust God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the examples that Ruth and Boaz and Naomi are, are of, to us of your loyal love, Lord. And they are certainly ideals that we hope to aspire to. Um, but we won't always be able to. We will fail. And so, Lord, we we ask for your help and your strength, Lord, to love with this loyal love that Ruth and Naomi and Boaz have shown. And, Lord, we're thankful that this is the way that they live and, and act 
and respond to one another is a characteristic of, of you towards your people and towards us. You have this everlasting love and loyalty and commitment to the promises that you make. And that's why we can have such assurance in the hope of Christ that His death and resurrection was sufficient for our sins. And then when we pass on, we will truly be with you. We, thankful for, we are thankful for that assurance. We are thankful for that assurance of fullness now, Lord, even though some of us now might be experiencing the emptiness that Naomi is experiencing one day, Lord. You make everything full. And so, Lord, please help us, especially throughout this week, to, when you give us opportunities to act in love, to do it, but also to know that ultimately, Lord, um, your purposes will be done and your goodwill will prevail. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.